Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Conclusion of Chapter 108 The Truth, Part 5 Answers and Riddles A pinch of red-brown dust was gently sifted into the potion's cauldron, and Harry asked his fourth and final question, the one that had seemed to have the lowest priority, but still mattered. What was your objective during the Wizarding War? I mean, what... what was the point of the entire thing? His brain repeated endlessly, Why? Why? Why Lord Voldemort? Professor Quirrell lifted an eyebrow. They told you about David Monroe, did they not? Yes, you were both David Monroe and Lord Voldemort during the Wizarding War. I understood that part. You killed David Monroe, disguised yourself as him, and wiped out David Monroe's family so they wouldn't notice any differences. Indeed. You planned to control whichever side won the Wizarding War, regardless of which side won. But why did one side have to be Voldemort? I I mean, wouldn't it have been easier to gain public support with someone less... with someone less Voldemort? Professor Quirrell's mallet made an unusually loud thud as it crushed white butterfly wings, mixing them with another bellflower. I planned for Lord Voldemort to lose to David Monroe. The flaw in that strategy was the absolute wretchedness of... No, I am telling the tale out of order. Listen, boy, when I had devised my great creation and come into the fullness of my magic, I thought the time had come for me to take political power into my hands. It would be inconvenient, certainly, and take up my time in ways that were not enjoyable. But I knew the Muggles would eventually destroy the world, or make war on wizard kind, or both. And something had to be done if I was not to wander a dead or dull world through my eternity. Having attained immortality, I needed a new ambition to occupy my decades, and to prevent the Muggles from ruining everything seemed a goal of acceptable scope and difficulty. It is a source of continual amusement to me that I, of all people, am the only one really taking action toward that end. Though I suppose it would make sense for the mortal insects not to care about their world's end. Why should they, when they are just going to die regardless, and can save themselves the inconvenience of trying to do anything difficult along the way? But I digress. I saw how Dumbledore had risen to power from his defeat of Grindelwald, so I thought I would do the same. I had long ago taken my vengeance on David Monroe. He was an annoyance from my year in Slytherin. So I bethought to steal his identity and wipe out his family to make myself heir of his house. And I conceived also a great foe for David Monroe to fight, the most terrifying Dark Lord imaginable clever beyond reckoning, 
more dangerous by far than Grindelwald, for his intelligence would be perfected in all the ways that Grindelwald had been flawed and self-destructive. A dark lord who would do his cunning utmost to disrupt the alliances who would fight him. A dark lord who would command the deepest loyalty from his followers through his oratical skills. The most dreadful dark lord who had ever threatened Britain or the world. That was who David Monroe would defeat. Professor Quirrell's mallet struck a bellflower and then a different pale flower with two more thuds. But then, while I had sometimes played the part of Dark Wizard in my wanderings, I had never adopted the identity of a full-fledged Dark Lord with underlings and a political agenda. I had no practice at the task, and I was mindful of the story of Dark Evangel and the disaster of her first public appearance. According to what she said afterward, she had meant to call herself the Walking Catastrophe and the Apostle of Darkness, but in the excitement of the moment she introduced herself as the Apostrophe of Darkness instead. After that, she had to ruin two entire villages before anyone took her seriously. So you decided to try a small-scale experiment first? A sickness rose up in Harry because in that moment he understood. He saw himself reflected. The next step was just what Harry himself would have done if he'd had no trace of ethics whatsoever, if he'd been that empty inside. You created a disposable identity to learn how the ropes worked and get your mistakes out of the way. Indeed. Before becoming a truly terrible Dark Lord for David Monroe to fight... I first created for practice the persona of a Dark Lord with glowing red eyes, pointlessly cruel to his underlings, pursuing a political agenda of naked personal ambition combined with blood purism as argued by drunks in Nocturne Alley. My first underlings were hired in a tavern, given cloaks and skull masks, and told to introduce themselves as Death Eaters. The sixth sense of understanding deepened, a pit in Harry's stomach. And you called yourself Voldemort? Just so, General Chaos. Professor Quirrell was grinning from where he stood by the cauldron. I wanted it to be an anagram of my name, but that would only have worked if I'd conveniently been given the middle name of Marvolo, and then it would have been a stretch. Our actual middle name is Morphin, if you're curious. But I digress. I thought Voldemort's career would last only a few months, a year at the longest, before the Aurors brought down his underlings and the disposable Dark Lord vanished. As you perceive, I had vastly overestimated my competition, and I could not quite bring myself to torture my underlings when they brought me bad news, no matter what Dark Lords did in plays. I could not quite manage to argue the tenets of blood purism as incoherently as if I were a drunk in Nocturne Alley. I was not trying to be clever when I sent my underlings on their missions, but neither did I give them entirely pointless orders. Professor Quirrell gave a rueful grin that, in another context, might have been called charming. One month after that, Bellatrix Black prostrated herself before me, and after three months, Lucius Malfoy was negotiating with me over glasses of expensive fire whiskey. 
I sighed, gave up all hope for wizard kind, and began as David Monroe to oppose this fearsome Lord Voldemort. And then what happened? A snarl contorted Professor Quirrell's face. The absolute inadequacy of every single institution in the civilization of magical Britain is what happened. You cannot comprehend it, boy. I cannot comprehend it. It has to be seen, and even then it cannot be believed. You will have observed, perhaps, that of your fellow students who speak of their family's occupations, three in four seem to mention jobs in some part or another of the ministry. You will wonder how a country can manage to employ three of its four citizens in bureaucracy. The answer is that if they did not all prevent each other from doing their jobs, none of them would have any work left to do. The Aurors were competent as individual fighters. They did fight dark wizards, and only the best survived to train new recruits. But their leadership was in absolute disarray. The Ministry was so busy routing papers that the country had no effective opposition to Voldemort's attacks except myself, Dumbledore, and a handful of untrained irregulars. A shiftless, incompetent, cowardly layabout, Mundungus Fletcher, was considered a key asset in the Order of the Phoenix, because, being otherwise unemployed, he did not need to juggle another job. I tried weakening Voldemort's attacks to see if it was possible for him to lose. At once, the Ministry committed fewer horrors to oppose me. I had read Mao's Little Red Book. I had trained my Death Eaters in guerrilla tactics. For nothing. For nothing! I was attacking all of Magical Britain, and in every engagement, my forces outnumbered their opposition. In desperation, I ordered my Death Eaters to systemically assassinate every single incompetent managing the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. One paper pusher after another volunteered to accept higher positions despite the fate of their predecessors, gleefully rubbing their hands at the prospect of promotion. Every one of them thought they would cut a deal with Lord Voldemort on the side. It took seven months to murder our way through all of them, and not a single Death Eater asked why we were bothering. And then, even with Bartemius Crouch risen to director and Amelia Bones as head horror, it was still too little. I could have done better fighting alone. Dumbledore's aid was not worth his moral restraints, and Crouch's aid was not worth his respect for the law. Professor Quirrell turned up the fire beneath the potion. And eventually, Harry said through the heart sickness, you realized you were just having more fun as Voldemort. It is the least annoying role I have ever played. If Lord Voldemort says that something is to be done, people obey him and do not argue. I did not have to suppress my impulse to cruciate people for being idiots. For once, it was all part of the role. If someone was making the game less pleasant for me, I just said Avada Kedavra regardless of whether that was strategically wise. And they never bothered me again. Professor Quirrell casually chopped a small worm into bits. 
But my true epiphany came on a certain day when David Monroe was trying to get an entry permit for an Asian instructor in combat tactics, and a ministry clerk denied it, smiling smugly. I asked the ministry clerk if he understood that this measure was meant to save his life, and the ministry clerk only smiled more. Then, in fury, I threw aside masks and caution. I used my legitimacy. I dipped my fingers into the cesspit of his stupidity, and I tore out the truth from his mind. I did not understand, and I wanted to understand. With my command of legitimacy, I forced his tiny clerk brain to live out alternatives, seeing what his clerk brain would think of Lucius Malfoy, or Lord Voldemort, or Dumbledore standing in my place. Professor Quirrell's hands had slowed as he delicately peeled bits and small strips from a chunk of candle wax. What I finally realized that day is complicated, boy, which is why I did not understand it earlier in life. To you, I shall try to describe it anyway. Today I know that Dumbledore does not stand at the top of the world for all that he is the supreme mugwump of the International Confederation. People speak ill of Dumbledore openly. They criticize him proudly and to his face, in a way they would not dare to stand up to Lucius Malfoy. You have acted disrespectfully toward Dumbledore, boy. Do you know why you did so? I'm... not sure. Having Tom Riddle's leftover neural patterns was certainly an obvious hypothesis. Wolves, dogs, even chickens fight for dominance among themselves. What I finally understood from that clerk's mind was that to him, Lucius Malfoy had dominance, Lord Voldemort had dominance, and David Monroe and Albus Dumbledore did not. By taking the side of good, by professing to abide in the light, we had made ourselves unthreatening. In Britain, Lucius Malfoy has dominance, for he can call in your loans, or send ministry bureaucrats against your shop, or crucify you in the daily profit if you go openly against his will. And the most powerful wizard in the world has no dominance, because everyone knows that he is... Professor Quirrell's lips curled. A hero out of stories, relentlessly self-effacing and too humble for vengeance. Tell me, child, have you ever seen a drama where the hero, before he consents to save his country, demands so much gold as a barrister might receive for a court case? Actually, there have been a lot of heroes like that in muggle fiction. I'll name Han Solo just to start. Well, in magical drama it is not so. It is all humble heroes like Dumbledore. It is the fantasy of the powerful slave who will never truly rise above you, never demand your respect, never even ask you for pay. Do you understand now? I think so. Frodo and Samwise from Lord of the Rings did seem to match the archetype of a completely non-threatening hero. You're saying that's how people think of Dumbledore? I don't believe the Hogwarts students see him as a hobbit. In Hogwarts, Dumbledore does punish some transgressions against his will, so he is feared to some degree. 
though the students still make free to mock him in more than whispers. Outside this castle, Dumbledore is sneered at. They began to call him mad, and he aped the part like a fool. Step into the role of a savior out of plays, and people see you as a slave to whose services they are entitled, and whom it is their enjoyment to criticize. For it is the privilege of masters to sit back and call forth helpful corrections while the slaves labor. Only in the tales of the ancient Greeks, from when men were less sophisticated in their delusions, may you see the hero who is also high, Hector, Aeneas. Those were heroes who retained their right of vengeance upon those who insulted them, who could demand gold and jewels in payment for their services without sparking indignation. And if Lord Voldemort conquered Britain, he might then condescend to show himself noble in victory and nobody would take his goodwill for granted, nor chirp corrections at him if his work was not to their liking. When he won, he would have true respect. I understood that day in the ministry that by envying Dumbledore I had shown myself as deluded as Dumbledore himself. I understood that I had been trying for the wrong place all along. You should know this to be true, boy, for you have made freer to speak ill of Dumbledore than you ever dared speak ill of me. Even in your own thoughts, I wager, for instinct runs deep. You knew that it might be to your cost to mock the strong and vengeful Professor Quirrell, but that there was no cost in disrespecting the weak and harmless Dumbledore. Thank you. Harry said through the pain. For that valuable lesson, Professor Quirrell, I see that you are right about what my mind was doing. Though Tom Riddle's memories had probably also had something to do with the way he sometimes lashed out at Dumbledore for no good reason. Harry hadn't been like that around Professor McGonagall, who admittedly had the power to deduct house points and didn't have Dumbledore's air of tolerance. No, it was still true. Harry would have been more respectful even in his own thoughts if Dumbledore had not seemed safe to disrespect. So that had been David Monroe, and that had been Lord Voldemort. It still hadn't answered the most puzzling question, and Harry wasn't sure that asking it would be wise. If, somehow, Lord Voldemort had managed not to think of it, and then Professor Quirrell had still managed not to think of it during nine years of contemplation, then it wasn't wise to say. Or maybe it was. The agonies of the Wizarding War had not been good for Britain. Harry decided and spoke. One thing that did confuse me was why the Wizarding War lasted so long. I mean, maybe I'm underestimating the difficulties that were facing Lord Voldemort... You want to know why I did not imperious some of the stronger wizards who could imperious others, slay the very strongest wizards who could have resisted my imperious, and take over the ministry in, oh, perhaps three days. Harry nodded silently. Professor Quirrell looked contemplative. His hand was still sifting grass clippings into the cauldron, bit by bit. That ingredient, if Harry remembered correctly, was something like four-fifths toward the end of the recipe. I wondered that myself, the defense professor said finally. 
when I heard Trelawney's prophecy from Snape, and I contemplated the past as well as the future. If you had asked my past self why he did not use the Imperius, he would have spoken of the need to be seen to rule, to openly command the ministry bureaucracy before it was time to turn his eyes outward to other countries. He would have remarked on how a quick and silent victory might bring challenges later. He would have remarked on the obstacle presented by Dumbledore and his incredible defensive prowess. And he would have had similar excuses for every other quick path he considered. Somehow, it was never the right time to bring my plans to their final phase. There was always one more thing to do first. Then I heard the prophecy, and I knew that it was time, for time itself was taking notice of me, that the span for hesitation was done. And I looked back, and I realized somehow this had been going on for years. I think... The occasional bit of grass was still dropping down from his hand, but Professor Quirrell did not seem to pay it any mind. I thought, when I was contemplating my past beneath the starlight, that I had become too accustomed to playing against Dumbledore. Dumbledore was intelligent. He tried diligently to be cunning. He did not wait for me to strike, but presented me with surprises. He made bizarre moves that played out in fascinating and unpredictable ways. In retrospect, there were many obvious plans for destroying Dumbledore. But I think some part of me did not want to go back to playing solitaire instead of chess. It was when I had the prospect of creating another Tom Riddle to plot against, someone even more worthy than Dumbledore, that I was first willing to contemplate the end of my war. Yes, in retrospect that sounds stupid, but sometimes our emotions are more foolish than we can bring our reason to admit. I would never have espoused such a policy deliberately. It would have violated rules 9, 16, 20, and 22, and that is too much even if you are enjoying yourself. But to repeatedly decide that there was one more thing left to be done, one more advantage left to be gained, one more piece I simply had to move into place before abandoning an enjoyable time in my life and moving on to the more tedious rulership of Britain. Well, even I am not immune to a mistake like that if I do not realize that I am making it. And that was when Harry knew what was going to happen at the end of this, after the Philosopher's Stone had been retrieved. At the end of this, Professor Quirrell was going to kill him. Professor Quirrell didn't want to kill him. It was possible that Harry was the only person in the world against whom Professor Quirrell wouldn't be able to use a killing curse. But Professor Quirrell thought he had to do it, for whatever reason. That was why Professor Quirrell had decided that it was necessary to brew the potion of effulgence the long way. That was why Professor Quirrell had been so easily negotiated into answering these questions, into finally talking about his life with someone who might understand. Just like Lord Voldemort had delayed the end of the Wizarding War to play longer against Dumbledore. Harry couldn't exactly recall what Professor Quirrell had said earlier about not killing Harry. It hadn't been anything straightforward along the lines of, 
I am absolutely not planning to kill you in any way, shape, or form unless you positively insist on doing something stupid. Harry had been reluctant himself to push the promise too far and insist on unambiguous terms because Harry had already known that he would need to neutralize Lord Voldemort and had expected more precise language to reveal that fact if they tried to exchange truly binding promises. So there certainly would have been loopholes, whatever had been said. There was no particular shock to the realization, just an increased sense of urgency. Some part of Harry had already known this, and had simply been waiting for an excuse to make it known to deliberation. There had been too many things said here that Professor Quirrell would not reveal to anyone with an expected lifespan measured in more than hours. The overwhelming isolation and loneliness of the life Professor Quirrell had described might explain why he was willing to violate his rules and talk with Harry, given that Harry was going to die soon, and that the world did not actually work like a play where the villain disclosing his plans would always fail to kill the hero afterward. But Harry's death certainly had to be in those future plans somewhere. Harry swallowed, controlling his breathing. Professor Quirrell had just added a tuft of horsehair to the potion of effulgence, and that was very late in the potion, if Harry remembered correctly. There weren't many bellflowers left in the heap to be added, either. It was probably time to stop worrying so much about risk and play this conversation less conservatively, all things considered. If I point out one of Lord Voldemort's mistakes, does he punish me for it? Professor Quirrell lifted his eyebrows. Not if the mistake is a real one. I do not suggest that you moralize at me, but I would not curse the bearer of bad news, nor the subordinate who makes an honest attempt to point out a problem. Even as Lord Voldemort, I could never bring myself to that stupidity. Of course, there were some fools who mistook my policy for weakness, who tried to thrust themselves forward by pushing me down in their public council thinking me obliged to tolerate it as criticism. Professor Quirrell smiled reminiscently. The Death Eaters were better off without them, and I do not advise you make the same mistake. Harry nodded, a slight shiver going through him. Um, when you told me what happened in Godric's Hollow on Halloween night, in 1981, I mean, um, I thought I saw another flaw in your reasoning. A way you could have avoided disaster. But, uh, I think you have a blind spot. A class of strategies you don't consider, so you didn't see it even afterward. I hope you are not about to say something stupid along the lines of, Don't try to kill people. I shall be unhappy if that is the case. Not values difference. True mistake given your goals. Will you hurt me if I act the part of the teacher toward you and teach lesson? Or if mistake is simple and obvious and makes you feel stupid? No, not if lesson is true. Um, why didn't you test the Horcrux system before you actually had to use it? Test it? Professor Quirrell looked up from the brewing potion, and indignation came into his voice. What do you mean, test it? 
Why didn't you test if the Horcrux system was working correctly before you needed it on Halloween? Professor Quirrell looked disgusted. You ridiculous... I didn't want to die, Mr. Potter, and that was the only way to test my great creation. What good would it have done to risk my life sooner rather than later? How would I have been better off? Harry swallowed a lump in his throat. There was a way for you to test your Horcrux system without dying. The general lesson is important. Do you see it now? No, Professor Quirrell said after a while. The defense professor gently crumbled one of the last bellflowers together with a strand of long blonde hair and then dropped it into the potion, which was bubbling brighter now. Only two more bellflowers remained on the potion's table. And I do hope your lesson is a sensible one, for your sake. Suppose, Professor, that I learned how to cast the improved Horcrux spell, and I was willing to use it. What would I do with it? Professor Quirrell answered at once. You would find some person whom you found morally abhorrent, and whose death you could convince yourself would save other lives, and murder them to create a Horcrux. And then what? Make more Horcruxes. The defense professor picked up a jar of what looked like dragon scales. Before that... After a time, the defense professor shook his head. I still do not see it, and you will cease this game and tell me. I would make horcruxes for my friends. If you'd ever cared about one single other person in the entire world, if there'd been just one person who gave your immortality meaning... Someone that you wanted to live forever with you. Then, then the idea of making a horcrux for someone else wouldn't have been such a counterintuitive thought. Harry was blinking hard. You have a blind spot around strategies that involve doing nice things for other people, to the point where it stops you from achieving your selfish values. You think it's not your style, I suppose. That particular part of your self-image is what cost you those nine years. The dropper of mint oil that the defense professor was holding added liquid to the cauldron, drip by drip. I see. I see. I should have taught Rabistan the advanced Horcrux ritual and forced him to test the invention. Yes, that is supremely obvious in retrospect. For that matter, I could have ordered Rabistan to mark himself onto some disposable infant to see what happened before I took myself to Godric's Hollow to create you. Professor Quirrell shook his head bemusedly. Well, I am glad I am realizing this now and not ten years earlier. I had enough to chide myself for at that time. You don't see nice ways to do the things you want to do! Harry's ears heard a note of desperation in his own voice. Even when a nice strategy would be more effective, you don't see it because you have a self-image of not being nice. That is a fair observation. Indeed, now that you have pointed it out, I have just now thought of some nice things I can do this very day to further my agenda. Harry just looked at him. Professor Quirrell was smiling. 
Your lesson is a good one, Mr. Potter. From now on, until I learn the trick of it, I shall keep diligent watch for cunning strategies that involve doing kindnesses for other people. Go and practice acts of goodwill, perhaps, until my mind goes there easily. Cold chills ran down Harry's spine. Professor Quirrell had said this without the slightest visible hesitation. Lord Voldemort was absolutely certain that he could never be redeemed. He wasn't the tiniest bit afraid of it happening to him. The second-to-last bellflower was dropped into the potion gently. Any other valuable lessons you would like to teach Lord Voldemort, boy? Professor Quirrell was looking up from the potion and grinning as though he knew exactly what Harry was thinking. Yes. If your goal is to obtain happiness, then doing nice things for other people feels better than doing them for yourself. Do you really think I never thought of that, boy? The smile had vanished. Do you think I am stupid? After graduating Hogwarts, I wandered the world for years before I returned to Britain as Lord Voldemort. I have put on more faces than I bothered counting. Do you think I never tried to play the hero just to see how it would feel? Have you come across the name of Alexander Chernyshov? Under that guise, I sought out a forlorn hellhole ruled over by a dark wizard, and I freed the wretched inhabitants from their bondage. They wept tears of gratitude for me. It did not feel like anything in particular. I even stayed about and killed the next five dark wizards to try taking command of the place. I spent my own galleons. Well, not my own galleons, but the same principle applies. To prettify their little country and introduce a semblance of order. They groveled all the more and named one in three of their infants Alexander. I still felt nothing, so I nodded to myself, wrote it off as a fair try, and went upon my way. And were you happy as Lord Voldemort then? Professor Quirrell hesitated, then shrugged. It appears you already know the answer to that. Then why? Why be Voldemort if it doesn't even make you happy? I'm you! I'm based on you! So I know that Professor Quirrell isn't just a mask. I know he's someone you really could have been. Why not just stay that way? Take your curse off the defense position and just stay here. Use the Philosopher's Stone to take David Monroe's shape and let the real Quirinus Quirrell go free. If you say you'll stop killing people, I'll swear not to tell anyone who you really are. Just be Professor Quirrell for always. Your students would appreciate you. My father's students appreciate him. Professor Quirrell was chuckling over the cauldron as he stirred it. There are perhaps 15,000 wizards living in magical Britain, child. There used to be more. There's a reason they're afraid to speak my name. You'd forgive me that because you liked my battle magic lessons? Seconded said Harry's inner Hufflepuff. Seriously, what the hell? Harry kept his head raised, though it was trembling. It's not my place to forgive anything you've done, but it's better than another war. Ha! 
If you ever find a time-turner that goes back 40 years and can alter history, be sure to tell Dumbledore that before he rejects Tom Riddle's application for the defense position. But alas, I fear that Professor Riddle would not have found lasting happiness in Hogwarts. Why not? Because I still would have been surrounded by idiots, and I wouldn't have been able to kill them. Killing idiots is my great joy in life, and I'll thank you not to speak ill of it until you've tried it for yourself. There's something that would make you happier than that. There has to be. Why? Is this some scientific law I have not yet encountered? Tell me of it. Harry opened his mouth, but couldn't find any words. There had to be something. Had to be something. If he could just find the right thing to say. And you have no right to speak of happiness either. Happiness is not what you hold precious above all. You decided that in the beginning. All the way back in the beginning of this year, when the Sorting Hat offered you Hufflepuff. Which I know about because I received a similar offer and warning all those years ago, and I refused it just as you did. Beyond this, there is little more to say between Tom Riddles. The defense professor turned back to the cauldron. Before Harry could think of any way to reply, Professor Quirrell dropped in the last bellflower, and a burst of glowing bubbles boiled up from the cauldron. I believe we are done here. If you have any further questions, they must wait. Harry shakily rose to his feet, even as Professor Quirrell took up the cauldron and poured out a ridiculously huge volume of effulgent liquid, more than seemed like it could fit in a dozen cauldrons, onto the purple fire that guarded the doorway. Now for the mirror. And Professor Quirrell drew forth the cloak of invisibility from his robes and floated it to drop before Harry's shoes. End chapter 108. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't done so yet, please consider leaving a rating or review at iTunes. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is The Fall by Ministry. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for Chapter 109, Reflections, Part 1. Reflections, Part 1.